Welcome to En Masse, stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I'm your host, Liz Medina. As a special bonus episode to keep you going while I work on season two, I have with me today, Daisy Pitkin, author of On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. It's a deeply personal, beautiful, and relevant book that chronicles a bold five-year campaign to bring a union to the dangerous industrial laundry factories in Phoenix, Arizona. So thank you so much for joining us today, Daisy. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So Daisy, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and your role in this laundry organizing campaign that you wrote about? I grew up in Ohio um, in a really small kind of farming village. And I um, went to college in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities. And I, I one of, while I was in college, um, I started working for USAS. I was kind of engaged in the anti-sweatshop battles that uh, students in the late 90s and early aughts were really um, sort of fervently engaged in. And it was really an important part of my college experience, sort of learning about the global sweatshop industry and then how students particularly can build power to resist dangerous working conditions in factories that make apparel for college students. And then in my senior year of college, some hotel workers um, at a Holiday Inn in Minneapolis were organizing a union. And seven of the housekeepers were arrested by the INS and threatened with deportation. It was a tactic that their bosses had used to um, try to break the union. And the community in the Twin Cities rose up in an incredible way. Um, And I spent a lot of time walking picket lines, um, helping to run kind of a, a hungry for justice strike kitchen And I got really involved in the labor movement in a new kind of way, in a way that felt um, really direct and community-based and based in collective action. And I knew that that's uh, the kind of work that I wanted to do. And not long after, I went to work for Unite. And Unite was engaged in a really, at the time, what, what I and also the other organizers on the campaign kind of thought was a crazy experiment. And the experiment was to see if we could organize industrial laundry workers who are, at the time, were almost all immigrants, mostly women, um, largely undocumented, in Phoenix, Arizona, which at that time was a deep red city in a deep red state. I mean, we're talking Joe Arpaio country. And... We wanted to see if we could go from 0% density in the industry, meaning none of the industrial laundries in the city were union, to a majority union industry, to see if we could raise standards in in, in industrial laundries in that state. Um, And that's what we did. And the book on the line is really the story of those five years of organizing those laundries and of um, seeing and being part of the solidarity that was built among laundry workers there. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible story. And the way you write about it is uh, so moving and uh, poetic. I, I have to say, you know, it's it's something that got me turning the pages. You know, I've read a lot of organizing books and 
Um, there's a lot of great material out there. A, a lot of it, it's very to the point. Um, and I appreciate the artistry that you bring. And I, I hope you don't mind. I actually would love to give the listeners a little sample of your writing in this book and um, then ask a follow-up question. But just to like give an idea of like how uh, intimate your writing is and the campaign was in many ways, and just also the int- intimacy or interconnectedness of, of labor and um, how we are connected as a working class in ways we um, take for granted every day. So um, this is right from your first few pages. Um, you're talking about you know, being at a hospital. So here, here's Daisy. Um, I'd been to the hospital three times in two months each time requiring a dose of morphine in order to withstand the hurt of infection and once the passing of kidney stones. As the nurses pushed the drug into the IV, my face grew heavy, my head hummed, my body stiffened and shook, hypothermic, as the refrigerated drip entered my bloodstream. This was eight years after we launched the campaign at your laundry, three and a half years since we had spoken, and I still thought of you, Alma as I asked for one blanket and then another and another and another. I thought of you as the nurses pulled them from a metal cabinet in the corner of the curtain enclosed stall and shook the thin material open in the airspace above the bed. As the blankets fluttered down, each one adding a layer to the thickening cocoon that enclosed my body. I thought of you and of Santiago and Anilia and Antonia and Reina and Cecilia. That hospital, University Medical Center, contracts linen service from your industrial laundry, you touched those blankets. And so, you know, this is just like a stretch, like the whole book is very striking in this way. And I just want to dig a little bit deeper and find out like, you know, why did this campaign specifically and specifically your relationship with Alma affect you to such an extent that you were thinking about her in this moment of vulnerability in the hospital. And further, you decided to write a whole book about it, uh, really. Um, well, thanks for those kind words about the book. But, um, you know, I started writing the book the day after that scene in the hospital. And I had already been away from the union for two years at that point. And, you know, union campaigns are crazy. They're um, intense they are nonstop. We didn't sleep really very much at all during the years of the the organizing in Phoenix. And I really, I got, I was incredibly burned out and sick at the end of it. And I left the union and thought I would never think about it again. I really thought I was done um, because it was hard. It was really hard. And, and there's some heartbreak that happens at the end of the book that I think, um, kind of exacerbated that difficulty, right? And Alma and I were not in touch anymore, even though we'd been friends for a long time. And right before that scene in the book, you know, I was like in graduate school and bartending. That's what I was doing. And um, the bar that I was working at switched from using a union laundry in town to a non-union laundry. And I was new at the bar and I kind of protested to the owner and to some other folks, but I couldn't really do much about it. And then one day I saw the driver of the non-union laundry's truck who had come to pick up the bar rags from the back of the bar. And he was the same driver who used to scream slurs and terrible things at 
Alma and I and the other organizers while we were standing in front of her factory handing out union leaflets. And I saw him and that night I got really sick and had to go to the hospital as is described in that scene. And, you know, I think a lot of what's interesting about industrial laundry organizing is that people, it's largely invisible work. If people don't think about where did the sheets from the hospital get washed or where do the sheets from the hotel get washed or the bar rags, right? And they get washed in every city in the country in these factories that sit either on the outskirts of town or sometimes are tucked away in warehouses right in the center of town, but we're not really aware of them just moving around in our day-to-day lives. And so I saw that driver and went into the hospital and I knew that the sheets that I were was lying on, the pillowcase, the hospital gown, the blankets that I was wrapped in, they were going to go on a truck that night and be driven up the I-10 to Phoenix and Alma was going to touch them like with her hands, you know, the intimacy of that is something that I think a lot of people don't think about. And I wanted to start the book with that intimacy, because I think it's really important. There are humans that touch the cloth that we come into contact with all the time. And they work in these big, often very dangerous factories in conditions that are hard to imagine in contemporary American society or U.S. society, I think. Um, And so I think the book came out of the urgency of kind of describing that that intimacy and why it's important to to everyone, why it should be important, why we were were sort of intimately connected with the working conditions in those factories, whether we want to be or not. Absolutely. I thought that was really powerful. It's kind of, you know, making all the invisible labor that's supports our lives and makes our lives possible, visible, that, um, you know, kind of like cognitive mapping that I think that Jameson once talked about of our economy and in a, in a really beautiful way. And I, I actually, what another thing that I really appreciated about your book and you talk about it and struggle with it is the uh, emotional aspect in organizing in this larger fight uh, against the rapacious exploitation of, you know, capital and these employers that just, you know, take so many of us for granted, especially the most vulnerable. And um, you you connect this uh, emotional aspect to your your actual organizing campaign with Alma and Industrial Laundry, but also to the history that your union has right from the beginning um, of your union. You move between the past and the present throughout your book of Unite. And then, you know, started as the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and, of course, the um, events around the famous Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. And you were talking about in one part of your book that you were learning about this history as part of your training as a, a union organizer. And it made you feel really emotional in retelling it. And you're kind of you're reprimanded a little bit by your superiors, it seemed like, um, for that. And... Um, You talk about how there's an emphasis on the system of organizing, the rational and teachable aspects of it. But you write, however, quote, unions are built on solidarity and solidarity is a form of closeness, maybe even intimacy, a network of deep connection that rewires a splintered collective and a unity of feeling and action. So. Um, I, you know, I want to pose a question that you ask in the book back to you. You know, what would it mean to build a union on both feeling and action? 
And how did that at all play into your organizing um, at Sodexo Commercial Laundry Exchange? I think I think a lot about this in the book, about what it means to be an organizer who really connects very emotionally to the work. I mean, I get choked up talk every time I tell the story of the Triangle Factory Fire. We're meant, you know, we're taught as organizers to tell this story because union organizing is really about storytelling, all of it. I mean, every everything is about the narrative of a campaign and the stories that we're able to tell each other and the story we're able to tell about the union itself and how it connects to issues that people might be having at work as a, and, and that it's sort of a collective way out of, of, the, of the issues at work, right? Storytelling is really the backbone of union organizing. And as a young organizer, the first thing I learned was how to tell the story of the history of the union. In fact, you know, I held... I work for Workers United now, which is an offshoot of Unite, which was an offshoot of the ILGWU. And um, we held a first organizing committee meeting of a group of workers organizing here in Pittsburgh. And the first organizing committee meeting, we did what we always do. And I was standing there telling the story of Claire Lemlich and the uprising of the 20,000 in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. And it's difficult for me still to this day, after 20 years, to tell that story without getting choked up. Um, and it's, it's, um, you know, I think as organizers, we're meant to learn how to tell stories in a way that moves people, moves people to action, right? Um, and not really to be moved by, by what we say. Um, and I, I've never learned that trick. It's hard for me. And, and I don't know exactly the way that that connects back to, the campaign, but I think that, you know, that there's another thing we learn as organizers is that, you know, one of the greatest barriers to workers deciding to sign a union card or take action with their coworkers or be part of forming a collective to better their working conditions is fear. And it legitimately it's fear because, you know, anti-union campaigns are vicious um, and they're intimidating and they're meant to be scary and people are afraid. And the one emotion that we're taught, that I was taught as a young organizer, that is strong enough to get people through their fear is anger, right? And we do a lot of agitation as organizers and we use anger. We stoke anger and then we use it to move people to action. And rightfully so. People should be righteously outraged at the conditions that people are working in. There should be anger, right? But I think that there's a lot of, there are a lot of other emotions too. There's hope and care and love that are equally powerful that the labor movement, at least the unions that I've worked for, the campaigns I've worked on, doesn't tend to think about as sort of an engine for a fight, right? And I, I wonder what it would mean to build a union out of love and care and solidarity and mutual aid. I think there are moments in labor history where that's really been discovered and also in other movements of resistance. Like, I think that movements of resistance and stories about them often focus on the thing that must be resisted and our anger at that thing, as righteous as it is, and our anger at the boss and corporate greed and the conditions that people have to work in 
instead of thinking about and telling the stories of the real worlds and communities that get built inside the movement of resistance, you know, we're not just taking power away from the boss or wresting it away from the boss. We're building something new and it has its own, it is its own source of power, right? Um, I don't know if that, how that answers your question, but those things all seem connected to the reason that I still can't tell the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire without crying. I, I think that was a brilliant answer. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad in a way to hear that. Bec- um, not, not that I want people to be sad about, uh, you know, or anything, but um, I, I think it's important in a way to have that connection because feeling is a motivator to action. And actually, I don't imagine how I would be you know, in my position and full disclosure, I'm the executive director of Vermont State Labor Council. Um, if I didn't have a a lot of feelings about um, working people, in, including caring and loving about them, but also sometimes, you know, anger and indignation when uh, those in power do abuse us. Uh, and it's interesting how those different um, emotions come into play in organizing and which ones we prioritize as well. Like you said, uh, it, the tendency is to agitate and focus on anger. And, you know, I think that anger can also come out of a place of love and care too, and be more complex and, and deeper. And, and uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see our stories of organizing and, and labor history through those other lenses as well and build organizations accordingly. And, you know, thinking about feeling it as a drive too. what I really loved about your book is this whole metaphoric structure you have um, of the moth and the flame and, you know, the cultural expressions like a moth to a flame, you know, these ideas feature prominently in your book, like, and I think, and it's a way talking about like, what does drive us to do this really hard thing, which is to organize a union of undocumented workers, mostly who have very little rights and protections in a 0% union density area, and in a very abusive industry on top of that. And so, you know, I think this metaphor seems to represent some of your thoughts on the relationship between feeling and action. And I'd love if you would share with us a little bit more about what these metaphors mean to you throughout this book and maybe how you're still thinking about them. I think at, at the start of writing the book, I really thought, you know, I don't know how to write this story without there being moths in it. which is sort of a strange thing to say about a union organizing campaign, I realize, But, you know, there really was a sort of um, infestation, some might call it, of moths at the beginning of this organizing drive. They were everywhere. And we did a lot of our shift meetings during the organizing campaign in the parking lot out in front of the factory. It had these big floodlights and there were moths just like plinking against the floodlights constantly. And it became this sort of ambient noise and also feeling of the campaign. And yeah, I started having these kind of haunting dreams about the moths. And Alma and I started calling ourselves at a certain point in the campaign, Las Polias, which is Spanish for the moths, um, as a sort of play on a book that I was reading, which was In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez. Um, So I was reading that book and kind of joking with Alma about 
you know, these people who are called Las Mariposas in the Dominican Republic and that we were kind of like their ugly cousins, like blindly smashing our heads against the, the pavement here in like 125 degree Phoenix, you know, doing our house calls. Um, so it's kind of started out as a joke. And so it, was, it didn't start as a metaphor. It was a real thing that was really happening. And it was intertwined in the campaign in a way that I couldn't get rid of when I was writing it. But then I started exploring moths more. Like, why is it that moths fly into flames? Why have they not evolved out of this sort of drive to kill themselves or to <laughs> fly into the... And it turns out we don't really know. We don't know why moths are attracted to flames. Scientists don't have a definitive answer for that. And I think it's really interesting. And culturally, we use that moth to flame um, phrase. And it means two different things in the common usage of it. Sometimes it means that the flame is sort of like luring the moth. And sometimes it means that that the moth is sort of like driven to the flame. And I'm kind of interested in that binary way of thinking, well, which one is it? Is it the flame that's doing like the beckoning or is it the moth that's sort of being driven into the flame? And I think the moths end up being a metaphor for sure in the book about transformation and what it means. But it connects back to the question that you were asking at the beginning of this about um, what drives people to fight? Why is it that some some people in a factory are driven by the working conditions or um, their indignation or just by the matter of who they are as a person, that some people are willing and able to fight and others are not? They're afraid. They can't, they can't bring themselves to do it. And what is that about? Do people fight because they're outraged? And the people who aren't fighting, is it that they're not outraged enough? Or do people fight because... They trust us as organizers to lead them to um, a, down a path to win a union. And they're doing it out of sort of trust and solidarity with us. And I think in reading about moths, I come to this story in Greek mythology where moth in ancient Greek is actually a homonym for a driving force, the thing that drives us. And it became strangely useful to me in the book to, to learn that moth actually means drive. A moth is the driving force, at least in Greek. And then it sort of helped me think about what drives people to fight. And I think at the end, I kind of land on this idea that people aren't driven to fight solely out of anger or because they're following a leader into a fight. I think people fight and are able to continue fighting because they witness their own capacity to fight and it changes them, right? We witness our ability to act as a collective, to stand up, and it changes us. And that to me is how the moth kind of ultimately connects to the story in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a very good point and observation. Um, and that actually, and Alma asks that question too in the book, you know, why do some people get angry and others get afraid? And, and it's, it's, it's a, a perennially interesting question to us organizers because, you know, we hope that we can somehow um, motivate or tap into 
some energy that, and, and, you know, to guarantee, um, you know, a mass uprising and success. And, and um, it's just, it's, it's more about actually just going probably and doing the organizing and doing the work and people being transformed by that work. I definitely uh, resonate with that. Um, and so, you know, speaking of like, you know, you know, what, what it is that drives us. I mean, the reason why it is so fraught in the world of organizing is because of how hard it is. And so it does take a lot of drive, a drive that may sometimes be risky, like a moth to a flame. Um, and also transformational, like a moth going undergoing from the caterpillar to the moth stage, chrysalis mm -hmm. stage. Um, so, you know, I was just taken aback about how many obstacles you all faced and yet were able to overcome them and actually win at the end of the day. But it was incredible and just so um, revealing of our broken system of labor law here in the United States. So would you mind sharing without giving too much away, perhaps like some of the obstacles are the main ones that just still dig at you um, that you uh, that Alma and her co-workers faced in trying to form a union at the Sodexo Commercial Linen Exchange. Um, what was our most egregious examples of union busting to you? Well, we started the campaign with a blitz, which is a series of house calls that you do in kind of a rapid fire way so that you can talk to the majority of workers or most of them, all of them, you hope, before the boss can start an anti-union campaign. So we blitzed through a weekend. There were about 220 workers in this factory. And by the by Sunday, um, you know, we started on Friday and by Sunday, a strong majority of workers had signed cards. We, and we filed for a union election for the through the NLRB. Immediately, the company's anti-union campaign was triggered. Um, they started holding captive audience meetings. They held them with small groups of workers. Workers went repeatedly through captive audience meetings um, and were um, you know, shown an anti-union video called Little Card, Big Trouble. The name of it's still kind of <laughs> funny to me. We talk about um, that we try to inoculate workers before an anti-union campaign like that happens. And we talk about this trifecta of anti-union um, sort of personas or groups of strategies that a company might use. And we say there's bad boss, sad boss, and good boss. And this company deployed all of them. They did bad boss, meaning they were, you know, surveilling workers and threatening workers and writing workers up when after the captives were sort of wearing down on folks who had shown support for the union by signing cards, the workers decided that they wanted to sign a petition to tell the company to stop um, harassing them and stop campaigning against their union. And a lot of workers signed it and they marched it into um, they marched it into the office of the laundry and they did it in such a large group that it effectively shut the factory down. We ended up, it was a work stoppage um, because the delegation of workers was so big and Alma and some of her coworkers were fired that day. The company later tried to claim that they had not in fact been fired, that they had been permanently replaced in like the 20 minutes that it took for um, the work stoppage to happen. They actually 
testified to this under oath in a labor board hearing. Um, so they used sort of the full array of strategies. They had a plant manager who was um, really well liked by about half of the workers in the plant. And he would come into the captive audience meetings and put like played sad boss to a T um, would kind of get a little bit weepy and teary eyed and some of the workers were moved by that because they felt bad for him. He kept saying, you know, I thought we were friends and why didn't you just come to me if you had these issues? Why would you go to a union? Um, so in that way, they kind of third partied the union, which is another strategy they like to use. But the, the, um, the number of charges that we brought against the company and the labor board's findings that they were, you know, they were meritorious enough for the government to then bring charges against the company. Um, they were so egregious that at the end of a very long NLRB process, um, an ALJ, an administrative law judge, um, awarded a Gissel bargaining order, meaning that she believed that the violations of labor law and of these workers' rights were so egregious that there could never again be a fair process to decide whether or not they wanted to have a union. The ground was like so scorched that you couldn't have any kind of process to decide whether or not they wanted to have a union. And she ordered the company to bargain outright with the union, just recognize the union and bargain with it outright, because clearly workers had a majority support for the union Three and a half weeks later, when the election happened, there was no longer majority support for the union. They just broke the back of the union. And then, of course, the company appealed the bargaining order in a process that was going to take years. And I'll stop there because I don't want to give away the end. Absolutely. Yes, please don't. And I hope I don't either. Um, I'm going to try my best. And I'm going to edit it out if I do. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, that was, it was so crazy, the idea that this employer could permanently replace uh, an employee within the span of 20 minutes. I mean, if that doesn't raise an, an eyebrow, then, you know, you're just totally complicit with um, the employer and corrupts. And so, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Um, but I'm so surprised still when I think about that, that, um, that any sort of corporate attorney or the, I'm sure, you know, the law firms, they hired two to, um, represent them in the NLRB hearing, that that sort of army of attorneys they had thought it was okay for them to get on the witness stand and say that they had been permanently replaced. I still, I think about it all the time still. I know, just lying right on the stem. It's, it's the, the audaciousness is just jaw-dropping. Um, and how brazen they are, because they're not held accountable. That's the the fact of the matter. Um, but yeah, it's so definitely read the book because it is a twisted story, um, but also you know one that will, will satisfy. So you know, given you know how easy it actually has become for employers to just completely subvert the already weak labor laws that we have. You know, what do you think is the most promising path forward for workers wanting to form a union? Do you think it's something like having more card check elections, or do you think we need to try to reform labor law, something else? I think right now, because labor law is so broken and loopholed, the only path to gaining union recognition and a contract that really improves standards is mass collective action. 
that is the path that workers have at this point, because the other path, the sort of board path, the NLRB path, is really difficult. And there are so many ways that companies can delay and deny workers their rights through that process that it takes a long time. And if you get there at the end, the workers who started the process, there's probably been turnover depending on the industry, but there's probably been so much turnover that the group is different from the the one that started, you know? So for a group of workers to stand up and demand recognition for their union that they've already formed and improvements in their work site, right now that's really, that is the best path is massive action, right? I think there, you know, there are some things on the table to improve labor law, like the PRO Act, which I'm really encouraged by because it gives teeth, it improves the sort of access to rights, um, expands it to more workers, more workers would actually be thought of as employees under the law. So it expands it in that way. Um, But it also, if a majority of workers sign union cards, then they don't have to go through a secondary process of a union election, right? Union elections right now are a majority of workers should sign union cards to show their interest. I know it's legally it's 30%, but we don't file for elections until we have a majority anyway. So we have a majority of workers who show interest in forming a union. And the company right now says, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> we'll set an election date to see if you really still want to have a union after we're through with you, right? Workers have to vote twice. They sign their cards and then they have to go, go through the gauntlet of union busting, and then they vote again to see if they still want a union after the union busting. That's all the union election tells us. And the PRO Act would fix that. And it would also be, allow the board to um, to levy stiffer fines and penalties against companies who violate labor law. So the PRO Act, you know, it's, um, I think even to get the PRO Act passed, though, we need mass collective action, right? It's not, it's not a given that that's going to happen. So those are our two paths. It's like legislatively improve the way that we can form unions, or we have to sort of go, go the other way and just demand unions through action. Absolutely. You say in the book, and it's, I, I believe it to be very true that we, in a lot of ways, we are operating in an environment that is more reminiscent of the early 20th century before we had the NLRA and other labor protections. And so workers uh, formed unions then by simply just doing it regardless of whether they are going to be formally recognized by this um, you know, supposedly neutral body. They had mass strike actions. Oftentimes, they had to organize, um, sometimes in secret. That's uh, the kind of action that also uh, led to, the, I think, the NLRA being enacted in the first place is that, like all the strikes that were happening during the Depression and that economic pressure that motivated the strikes. I mean, the, I think it was in the interest probably of the capitalist class at that time to try to channel that energy into a, a, a kind of labor peace arrangement with the NLRA and NLRB. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. And um, I'm excited to hopefully see more organizing done through mass action. I know Workers United um, has that philosophy, though. I understand they have been um, largely pursuing the uh, NLRB election process. And I hope they keep kicking ass, though. But anyway, uh, to get back to your, your book and um, some of the amazing things you discuss in it, um, 
this kind of is like the flip side of what we were talking about earlier about the emotional aspects and intimacy involved in organizing. During your campaign, your union that you're working for, Unite, merges with HERE to form Unite HERE. And you encounter a very different organizing style that does, you know, put an emphasis on intimacy and organizing, but kind of perverts it into a strange play of manipulation and control. And so, you know, would you, you know, discuss maybe some of the different systems and of organizing and philosophies, um, for lack of better terms, and, you know, how these compare and why you think organizing should be a solidacious cup and going into that (laughs) idea. (laughs) I think, um, you know, the mergers happen all the time in the labor movement. And sometimes they aren't as successful as others. And I think that Unite and HERE and the organizing departments of those two separate unions had very different philosophies about organizing and about the role of paid staff union organizers in an organizing campaign. And I think I didn't, before the merger happened, I didn't really understand that there was a culture that I was coming from, that there was an organizing culture. It was like water. And I, you know, like I didn't think about it. I didn't ever have to examine it. I never interrogated it. I never looked at its like strengths and weaknesses because I didn't see it. And then we merged with um, a, an organization, a union that that operated very differently. And suddenly I could see not only their organizing method and what I thought were some pretty serious flaws in some pockets of it, to be fair. It was not the, you know, HERE was not a monolith and neither was Unite. People did things differently in different parts of it. But the organizers that I came into contact with were, were using a model that was very much based on their own personal stories and their own personal drive to fight. What, what, what was it about them that made them want to be involved in the fight? And they learned to tell the personal story of their own fight to workers to motivate them to tell their own personal story about what it might be that was driving them to join a movement to form a union, right? And Unite, our from our side, we were sort of firewalled from talking about ourselves in the organizing. We were meant to be guides or kind of conduits for workers who wanted to stand up and better their working conditions to become rank and file members of our union. Um, And our personal feelings about why we were fighting or what we were doing as part of the labor movement were never addressed or discussed, right? And I think both of those methods have flaws, (laughs) I'll say. Um, Because in my experience as an organizer, some of the most successful organizing I've done was there in Phoenix. And and the, the trust and solidarity that I was able to build with Alma, that she was able to build with other laundry workers, it didn't come from sort of divulging our own personal stories as leverage to get workers to tell us their personal stories. And it really didn't come from the Unite Method under which we were supposed to be kind of like invisible guides for this, like, you know, this transformation to happen among workers. It happened because we spent 
day in and day out in the grind of organizing, like driving and crazy loops around Phoenix trying to do house calls and, you know, getting folding chairs from the union office and carting them to Santiago's yard and putting them up under the tree so that we could have committee meetings and then putting them back in the car. And like those kind of the time that you spend, not in like the, the, um, rallies and marches and picket lines and work stoppages, not in the louder moments of an organizing campaign, but the quieter kind of day in and day out grind of union organizing to me was where the, the union was really built. And I feel like I, I wanted to write a book that tells the story of that part of the organizing, because I think we don't tell stories about it, you know? We tell stories in this more cinematic way. It's like Sally Field on the table with the union sign or Clara Lemlich boosted up onto the stage as this like spontaneous act of outrageous courage. We like to tell our stories in the labor movement in that way rather than like, oh, I was driving around drinking water out of a gallon jug after it sat in a 150 degree car for two hours. <laughs> People don't want to tell those stories, but that's where organizing happens. That's what a union looks like. Um, and I, yeah, I think to me, that's the kind of the solidacious cup is like, I, I didn't, I think it's important to sort of hold all of those moments of like intimacy and exchange and trust building and community building into our idea of what organizing looks like. Mm, mm, absolutely. And, and you, you make a great argument for that throughout the book uh, and looking at history too with uh, Clara Lemlich, or I'm so sorry, I probably mispronounced her last name, but the um, woman who was, is attributed to have starting the uprising of 20,000, uh, the garment worker, you know, all the organizing that was, uh, she was part of and happening around her and the community made that moment happen. And we, we, we like to, I think, I don't know, reduce those stories into like some kind of hero story that in a lot of ways confuses us as to what actually it takes to organize and, and maybe, um, you know, creates this, uh, these, I don't know, this, this individualist mindset um, that can happen in organizing that you're going, to, as the organizer, you're going to do the work and they're going to follow you and, and that's that kind of the attitude that was a little bit involved with the organizers you met as, as part of here. And again, I appreciate you saying they were not a monolith at all. Um, it was just the particular culture brought in um, by those particular here organizers. And it, it is a much more holistic, broader um, set of relationships. And the grind too is something I really appreciated you talking about because it is so hard and it takes a lot out of you. You know, one of the first scenes you talk about the or uh, the office in which you're working out of is like the, a cup of no doughs or a bag of no doughs and cigarettes. I mean, you know, it's just it's nonstop um, talking and working. So, for a couple more questions, I don't want to take too much more of your time. But you know, this solidacious cup is is like also a, this larger we that we're talking about. You know, our workplace, our coworkers, our community, all those relationships. And you write that your book is a practice of longing for an uncomplicated we, or a we that is not in need of ongoing examination, as you write. 
let it resist any telling that pretends one exists is what you write as well. So what kind of ongoing examination do you think is needed in thinking about we in terms of workers and unions? You know, how can we think about that and examine the we more um, while also understanding that there is a they at the end of the day that we also need to pay attention to? I think I think one of the sort of projects of On the Line was to think about, think hard about what it means to be a paid staff organizer in a union. Um, what is what is the role of that person, of me? I am now, I'm still a paid staff organizer at a union. You know, the book kind of walks through some of the tricky language that ends up being used. Like when you're talking to workers on an organizing campaign, it's their campaign, it's their union. And that's incredibly important because, I mean, for a bunch of reasons. One, because it should be their union, right? And it will be their union. And we hope that they will be empowered enough inside the organization to run their union, right? As paid staff organizers, we aren't members of the union. We're being paid by the union to guide workers through the process. Um, but that's messy because we spend our lot, you know, hours and hours of our lives very committed to this project that isn't ours. It's not our project at the end of the day. And a lot of organizers, I think, when when they're talking to each other, um, especially sort of as you um, move into sort of the the national union, are not using those pronouns in the same way. They're not always saying that the union is the workers' union. They're talking about our union. They mean themselves. They mean it is their union as well. Um, and I th I always thought that was interesting during an or you know while I was a young organizer in Unite, sort of paying attention to when we use we, when we use you. I think, um, you know, stories, we tell stories as a way to create a we. And we use them in union organizing to create a sense of a we, and a we that it stands sort of in contrast to a them, which is often the boss. Um, we use stories to create a collective, right? And of course, this book is a story. It's its own story. And it's being used to create a we. But I think it's really important to not uncomplicate the we that is me as an organizer and where I stand. Like I was paid to lead workers through this fight. The risk for me was zero. I was being paid to win a, to win a fight, to lead them through a fight that they won, right? They were risking their livelihoods, right? And the stakes are just really different. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And it's important to acknowledge the sort of power dynamic that exists when those factors come into play, right? Um, and I, I wanted to write that passage that you quoted into the book, just sort of out of an acknowledgement that this book is also a story that's creating a we. And I write parts of it in second person to Alma to further complicate that idea of where I where I stand. I want there to be sort of a constant awareness of the complicated role of union organizer. Absolutely. And I appreciate that complexity because I think it is by default something we don't think about too much. We are really focused on, you know, winning the campaign 
and not really examining our role as union staff in that and what kind of structure we are building as a result of not examining that. You know, what kind of hierarchies are we bringing into the organizing campaign by not examining that, you know, the hierarchy of staff controlled unions, for instance, and which is a, a big problem um, and, uh, you know, something we need as a labor movement to address and, and really try to practice union democracy. And part of that is by having an honest conversation about we and they. And I think, I think it starts also on an organizing campaign. It can't start once workers are members of a union have gone through this fight. Um, it has to start on an actual organizing campaign. So if the campaign, if the decisions of the campaign are being led by, you know, an organizer, a paid staff organizer who's coming to the meeting and presenting a plan to win all the time, like, here's how we're going to win, we're going to go through these steps. And it creates a kind of dependency on the staff organizer that still exists then once workers become part of a union. The way we run a campaign, the stories we tell about our union, even the historical parts, right? And the language we use during the course of a campaign gives shape to the union that workers will inhabit once they're rank and file members, right? It gives shape to the the imagined possibilities of what their role in the union might be. And we have to think about that if we want democratic unions. And I think we have to want democratic unions if we want a labor movement that's going to continue to grow. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um... I, I see we only have a few more minutes left, but this question does come to my mind a lot. Um, you know, why do you think it's easy, so easy for us as uh, staff um, to slip into the we conversation? And do you think it's like, what about the larger we and they too, um, between the working class and the capitalist class? Do you think maybe that's like part of the reason why we as union staff, even if we have good intentions, slip into that uh, dichotomy? Or what do you think is behind that? Wait, say more about that. You yeah. mean the we and the they between organizers and workers? Um, yeah, sorry, I didn't word that very well. The the we and the they in terms of the larger um, class war in our society. So there's the workers and the employer at, at the micro level of a particular um, business. And then there's, you know, the working class in a, in a nation, the international working class and, you know, the international capitalist class, you know, there's that we and they too. And in, in which case, you know, there is like a larger shared we um, that, you know, maybe staff feel they are part of in terms of that much broader fight. Um, but, you know, again, like it, it, that's probably um, an oversimplification, but I'm wondering like how you think about that, the, the larger we and they and what that looks like to you. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I yeah, I have worked in unions for a long time and I don't have a sense very often that people are identifying with a broader working class struggle. They do see the struggle that they're having in their own workplace. And sometimes they see the struggle that other members of maybe their local or regional union are undergoing and they're there to stand in solidarity with them. But I don't think, at least not the unions that I worked for, are doing much work on building a broader sort of sense of class identity and class struggle, right? Um, and I think that part of that kind of connects with 
the question you asked before about which we sort of ended by talking about internal union democracy. I think unions that are led by staff, it's true that a lot of staff um, and more and more these days, which I think is encouraging, are coming from rank and file roles in the union. Um, we're rank and file members, and then maybe they were shop stewards, and maybe they were internal organizers. And um, and I think we're doing a better job of that than we ever have before, or at least in a long time, I should say. Um, and I, I think a lot of staff, or a good number of staff at least, are from the working class themselves and um, are in the role that they're in in the union because they are connecting with a broader idea of class struggle and that very big we versus them that you're talking about. But I think by and large, unions, and until we can access a deeper level of internal democracy in unions, it's going to be difficult to get to that bigger we in a way that that is immediately accessible to members in the union. Very well said. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, but thank you so much for this. It was really, it was awesome to talk with you about, about the book. I appreciate it. I, I absolutely. Thank you so much again for talking with me uh, on um, writing this amazing book and sharing this amazing story and asking these really important questions that we need to ask as, as of ourselves, as staff in the labor movement, as workers in the labor movement, um, and as, as a larger working class too. So thank you again, Daisy Pitkin, for this fantastic book. You can pick it up on the line, A Story of Class Solidarity and Two Women's Epic Fight to Build a Union at your independent bookstore. You can follow Daisy on Twitter at Daisy Pitkin. Thank you for listening. If you like this show, go to onmasspodcast.com slash donate to show your support. That's E-N-M-A-S-S-E podcast.com slash donate. Special thanks again to Daisy Pitkin for this amazing interview and even more amazing book. I'm Liz Medina. This is On Mass, bringing you stories of struggle and hope from the working class.